Genesis chapter 1. And this morning we're going to be beginning a new series, a series that will last for a few weeks, a series that's entitled The Mission. Uh, the Mission, you all know that at the, if you've been around for a little while, at the beginning of January, we like to take that month and even a little into February and just kind of reiterate and refocus on the mission we believe God has called us to. And so we're going to look at, jump around a little bit in Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 3. But I want to read into your hearing this morning just one verse of Scripture. Uh, you might not even need your Bibles for it. Some of you might have it memorized. But it's going to be Genesis 1, 1. And I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word. Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning, verse 1. And this is what Moses records under the inspiration of the Spirit in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Let's go before him. Heavenly Father, God, we are privileged to be in this place. We are thankful to gather to lift high your great name and declare that you are worthy of all of our worship. God, we ask, I ask that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I didn't say this at the beginning, so I'll say it now. If you're visiting with us, my name is Pastor Michael. I'm privileged to serve as one of the pastors here at Newbreed Church. Uh, we're thankful that you're here, thankful that you, you are with us this morning. I want this morning for us to consider this idea. I want us to consider the idea, the motivation for the mission, the motivation for the mission. You know, in 2018, Forbes magazine published an article that was entitled, The Importance of Having a Mission-Driven Company. Would you do me a favor, Chris? Will you cut that off for me? There's a switch on the back side of that. Uh, an article that was entitled, The Importance of Having a Mission-Driven Company. And so in this article, uh, the author picks up on the significance for companies uh, if the mission of a company is what motivates the workers more than anything else motivates them. Uh, for example, they noted in this, in this article that workers who are motivated by the mission are 54% more likely to stay at the company long term. Similarly, they, they noted that 30% are more likely to perform at the highest possible standards when they're motivated by the mission rather than being motivated by their paycheck. And so most organizations have tried to utilize this reality. You're hard-pressed to find any company today that doesn't have a mission statement attached to their business. It doesn't matter what the business is. Some of them might surprise you. Let me give you a couple of them. Do you know McDonald's has a mission statement? Here's McDonald's mission statement. Our mission is to make delicious, feel-good moments easy for everyone. And this is how we uniquely feed and foster communities. Man, what a mission. Those fries are out there cultivating community, creating feel-good moments for everybody. Take Toyota's mission statement, if you will. They say to Toyota will lead the future mobility society, enriching lives around the world with the safest and most responsible ways of moving people. Through our commitment to quality, ceaseless innovation, and respect for the planet, we strive to exceed expectations, is my favorite part, and be rewarded with a smile. They ain't take my smile when I tried to buy that Corolla back in the day. But what a mission statement. They care for the environment. They're getting people around safely in such a way that will make you happy. 
and all they want is a smile. What a mission. Last one, HP Computers. It says, our vision at HP is to create technology that makes life better for everyone, everywhere, and our mission is to create experiences that amaze. They got to fix the update problem if they want that to happen. There is nothing amazing about waiting for that update. But see, what all these companies understand is that if they can get the people to buy into the mission, specifically the people who work for them, if they can get them to buy into that, they will stay longer, they will work harder, they will produce more. And the reason for this is because probably unbeknownst to them, they've tapped into something that's just fundamental about being a human, which is that we desire purpose. When people find purpose, when they buy into a mission, they're more likely to strive harder, sacrifice more if they believe that the mission serves a real purpose and that they're doing something that matters. But on the flip side, you are in danger if you don't know what you're trying to accomplish. But there's an even greater danger if you know what you are supposed to accomplish, but you don't know why. You see, purpose matters and understanding of the mission matters because, again, we're created for a purpose. There's a reason we exist as human beings, and there is a mission set before us in a very real sense. This is true of the church as well. Though we're not a company, though our aim isn't to make money, the church has a mission and a purpose, and it's not one that we've made up. It comes from the very one who created us. And so the way that we at New Breed have tried to summarize our mission is like this. That we exist to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. That's our mission statement. We exist to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. And there is so much that's packed into that single sentence, so much that we're going to take over a month to try to dive into different aspects of this mission statement. Again, for those of you who have been around a bit, you know that we revisit this every January. We come back to our mission statement as a means of refocusing us at the beginning of the year for the task that we believe is before us. But I'll be honest with you guys, I'm more excited this year to preach this series than I think I've ever been. And not because the mission has changed, not because our purpose has changed, but because I believe this past year, specifically over these past few months, God has been revealing to me more and more insights about the beauty of our mission and what it means. So I'll be straight with you. I'm fired up to preach this, okay? I don't know what that's going to mean for you, but I'm just telling you now. But not just because I get to preach it, but because I believe that if we as a church genuinely buy into this mission, if we live as if this is the purpose of New Breed Church, it's hard for me to even imagine what God can do through us. I said it last week, I believe it. I think that New Breed is on the cusp of God doing some incredible things, but I don't want you to miss this. You will have to play a part in that. I don't think we're sitting back saying, God, do the amazing, do the incredible, tell us when it's done. No, we're going to be a part of this. And I believe the part that we will play is by truly buying into the mission of the church and living our lives to accomplish that mission. So here's what we're going to do throughout this series. We're going to be looking at different aspects of the mission statement to hopefully catch a clearer glimpse of the full picture of what God is calling us to. And what I want to do this morning in some regards is I want to set the stage for the remainder of the series. So if you are here this morning, you came on the right Sunday because a lot of what we're going to talk about is not going to make much sense if you miss this one. This is the foundation we're building everything on because 
Again, here's the truth. If we miss this, if we fail to grasp the reason for the mission, which I believe is captured in two words of our mission statement. I'll tell you those two words in just a moment. We will miss the motivation for the mission. And if we don't have a motivation that is solid, here's what's going to happen. We'll run real hard for a couple years. And then we'll get so burnt out because our motivation won't last. So we need a solid motivation, a solid foundation if we're to accomplish the mission that the Lord has set before us. But I want to tell you also why we revisit this every year. I think partially it's for me as much as it is for you. The reason we revisit our mission statement every January is because it strikes at one of my greatest fears for Newbury Church. I know we're not supposed to be afraid of anything, but I'm just going to be real with you. It strikes at one of my greatest fears. Can I tell you what it is? It might surprise you. My fear is not that the church would decline in attendance. Sometimes churches need to decline in attendance. Some of y'all have been around at the start of this thing. You saw that happen. The church needed to decline in attendance. My fear is not that the world would disdain us for some major moral failure or that we would be engulfed in controversy. We're always on guard for that, trust me, but that's not my biggest fear. My fear is not that no one else will join the church. If this is the body that the Lord wants to use to fulfill this mission until our final breath, I'm good with that. It's not about growing numbers. My fear is not that Newbreed Church will within the next 10 years close its doors because sometimes churches need to close their doors. And it doesn't mean you failed. My greatest fear for Newbreed is that we would exist. And that's it. That we would spend our lifetime doing the same thing every week with no real sense of the beauty and the majesty of the mission that God has called us to. What scares me the most is apathy. And so that's why we look at the mission. That's why we remind ourselves of it. It's not just words on a page. This mission statement is our marching orders. Even we as pastors try to filter everything we do through that mission statement. Is it about gathering around the gospel? Is it about going with the gospel? No, we're not doing it. So again, this morning, I want to try to capture for you the motivation for our mission. Before we ever talk about what we do, this is the why. And our mission statement hints at it at the first two words. We exist. There it is. The reason that we fight to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel is because we exist. Let me try to show you that this morning. The Bible begins with those words that we just read a moment ago that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And this truth, Genesis 1-1, is the foundation of our mission. Because in this statement is a whole theology. Because it's making a claim. A claim that if it's true, ought to shape the trajectory and purpose of our lives. See, we have to understand, to kind of catch a glimpse of what's going on here, we have to understand what Genesis is. Because a lot of us approach Genesis as if it's just an account of the first things. And though it is that, it's much more than that. You see, Genesis, like the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, uh, we attribute that to Moses. It was written by Moses sometime after the Exodus and obviously before his death. So after Israel was led from freedom in Egypt, like led from captivity to freedom in the promised land, it's, it's after that movement, before Moses' death, that, that the first five books of the Bible are written. 
And again, we read it as if, G- as if Moses is just trying to give us an, a historical account of what happened. That is happening, but that's actually not the primary motivation for Genesis. You see, Genesis, more than being historical, is actually an apologetic. It's Moses' defense of the faith. You have to remember the context in which this was written. See, for hundreds of years, for over 400 years, the people of God were in slavery in Egypt. And during that time, they were inundated with other religions, other practices, other forms of worship, other beliefs. And so what Moses is doing as they are being led out of slavery into freedom is he's looking at the people and he's saying, man, these people have really bought into a lot of the stuff that they acquired while they were in Egypt. We got to fix that. I got to defend the true faith. Now, I don't have time to press into it as much as I'd like to this morning. It's fun for me. But if you place the creation narrative next to many of the other religious accounts of creation at the time, you'll see that Moses is systematically challenging the claims of other religions. Let me just, let me just give you one. Before I do that, this is actually the reason why when a lot of people evaluate Christianity, they say, well, no, when you look at the beginning accounts of the Bible, it's basically just stolen from Egyptian mythology. It's not stolen from Egyptian mythology. It's defending the true faith against Egyptian mythology. So, again, Moses is laying the Christian story on top of Egyptian mythology and saying, hey, it's not the Egyptian mythology. Let me give you one example. In Egyptian mythology, the world is said to, be of, has said to be created from a vast cosmic ocean of nothingness. Their mythology claims that for eternity, the creator's sun god, Atum, or often called Ra, had drifted, he had drifted asleep in this cosmic ocean, which the Egyptians called Nun. And eventually, Ra woke up, and he willed that a small island would emerge out of this cosmic ocean, And so the God is in the water, asleep, supposedly wakes up and decides to create. And Moses is directly attacking this idea in Genesis 1 verse 2, where he says, Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. Oh, what Moses is doing is fascinating. In essence, he's saying, you claim that your God was in the water asleep. But what I'm trying to tell you is that my God was above the water. He wasn't asleep. He was moving. He was hovering over the waters. Genesis is an apologetic claim about the supremacy of Yahweh over all other gods. And this is Moses declaring that there is only one true God, and it ain't the God of Egypt. Moses is teaching the people who have been influenced by the ways of the world that Yahweh is God and God alone. So this claim, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If this claim is true, it is a claim that demands a response. Oh, and what a claim it is. Listen, I had already mapped this series out, so I ain't steal it from him. I'm just telling you. But I heard Dr. Uh, Reverend Dr. Charlie Dates preach on Genesis 1-1 this week, which I should have listened to it after I wrote my story because sermon because then I did want to steal it because his was better than mine. But he said this. He said, if you can believe the first words of the Bible, you can read and believe the rest of it. If you can believe, and he just took the first four words, that in the beginning, God, hey, the rest is cake. Because what a declaration Genesis 1-1 is making. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'm, I'm getting excited. I'm just going to preach it. You ready? Here it is. This is a declaration that before was, was, God was. 
This is a declaration that there is a God who has eternally existed outside of time and space. That there is a God who has never been dependent on anybody or anything. There is a God who when nothing existed, everything that mattered was already present. Did you hear me? There is a God who existed in nothing, reached out to nothing, used nothing, spoke to nothing, and then there was something. There is a God who sits outside of everything that can possibly exist in the universe and yet intimately cares about the universe he created. What I'm trying to tell you is that the reason we worship God is simply because God is God. In the beginning, God. And that truth ought to force us to go somewhere. I'm trying to take them there, Pastor Mike. I'm going to get them there, okay? Here it is. God is not worthy of your worship because the world exists as you want it to exist. God is not merely worthy of worship because your life is playing out the way that you thought it should. God is not merely worthy of worship because your health is intact or because your bank account is full or because you have the finer things in life. God is not merely worthy of worship because your spouse likes you, your kids behave, and you got some friends that have your back. God is not worthy of worship because the church you goes to, go to plays the songs you like and the preacher preaches the way you prefer. Because if all those things are stripped away, God would still be worthy of worship. Why? Because in the beginning, God, that's all we need. John Dixon, in his book on the mission of the church, which is going to shape a lot of this series, he says this. He says, if there is if there is just one God in the universe, everyone everywhere has a duty to worship him. You see, the existence of one true God is the motivation for worship but it's also the foundation for our purpose. We exist. The reason that we were created is to worship God. And God defines what that worship looks like. Let me show you. This is great. Jump down a few verses to verse 26. Genesis 1, verse 26, we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Now verse 28, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. And so what we get here is the creation of humanity. And in verse 26, we see the image of God come into play. And it says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So, so when you read the Genesis account, you read that God creates all living things according to their kind. Do you see that in the story? Remember that? Seed-bearing plants according to their kind. Animals according to their kind. But then when he gets to humanity, he creates them according to his image. There's a lot to be said about what it means to be made in the image of God, but one aspect of it is a functional aspect. And what I mean by that is that we are meant, by being made in God's image, to function as God's representatives on earth. That was true before the fall ever took place. 
We were created to multiply, be fruitful and multiply, to exercise dominion, to rule over this world as vice regents or representatives here on earth. So let me try to paint the picture for you a little bit. Think of an embassy, right? Some of you have heard this example before. The United States has 307 embassies across the world. And so what an embassy is, for lack of a better explanation, it's almost like the U.S. embassy is almost like a little piece of the United States on someone else's soil, right? Now, the U.S. doesn't own that soil. Like, U.S. embassies, contrary to popular belief, that it's not considered American soil if you walk into the U.S. embassy in France. It's still French soil. But that embassy represents the United States. Those diplomats don't represent themselves. They don't represent the country they're in. They represent the government of the United States of America. In a very real sense, that's what we are for God's kingdom, right? We are representatives of his kingdom here on this earth. And we faithfully obey God by representing his kingdom well. We are, in fact, worshiping God, the God who created us when we represent his kingdom well, and again, our purpose is to worship. Now, I want you to see something, and this is very interesting. This is, this is something new that I've, I kind of have been chewing on a little bit in the Genesis account. I want you to see this, that our justification initially as vice regents, as representatives of God's kingdoms before the fall ever came, our justification came from the word of God. Like you see it there in the text where it says that God blessed them. And then told them to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, subdue it, rule over it. One author notes this. He says that when God created Adam and Eve, he justified them. He told them in all the universe that their existence was good and worthwhile because he had created them. They were valued and precious in his sight. God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And he notes this. He says Adam and Eve's justification depended on on him, on his word, his speech. Why? He says, because God called them good. It was his word, therefore, that gave them the right to rule. So, so, so track with me here. So they were justified and empowered by the word of God to rule as God's representatives. In other words, we are free to worship because we don't have to worry about justifying ourselves. Like for Adam and Eve, like they didn't have to justify their own dignity. They didn't have to justify their life. They didn't have to justify their value. They didn't have to justify God's love because God's word spoken to them was a sufficient enough justification for them. And because they didn't have to justify themselves, they were free then to worship God by doing what he had called them to do. God's justification freed them to worship him in obedience. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, Pastor, this is great. All right, maybe that's too presumptuous. Pastor, we get it. We are created to worship, but what in the world does this have to do with the mission of the church? Great question. Here's my answer. Everything. It has everything to do with the mission of the church. I remember when I was in high school, um, I don't remember the context of the conversation. I think it was around my junior year. I was talking to my pops about something. Something having to do with Jesus, right? Because that's when he recommends books to me is when we're talking about Jesus. Um, we were talking about something, and he recommended this book to me. He said, I think you should read this book. And so I picked up this book. I didn't know who this dude was at the time. It's this book by John Piper that was called Let the Nations Be Glad. Um, 
I'm going to be honest with you, Dad. I didn't finish the book, at least not that time. But I read the first two sentences, and it changed my paradigm. And here's what it says. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. And missions exist because worship doesn't. Let me say that again, that missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. But missions exist because worship doesn't. You see, the reason that missions matters is because for many people, worship doesn't. So the question then is why? Why doesn't worship exist as it should? Well, for that, we have to turn to Genesis chapter 3. So flip over if you need to flip. Genesis chapter 3, and I want to point some things out to you. I know that Genesis 3, for many of us, is a story that we're familiar with. It's the story of the fall of man, of when Adam and Eve ate the fruit and, and all that was entailed in that. But I want to I try to point a couple things out to you. Let's start reading in, in verse 4. Genesis 3, verse 4, it says, so, so at this point, let me set the stage, Satan has come as a serpent, comes to Adam and Eve. Basically, he... He's trying to convince them to disobey God. And there was a tree that God had said, don't eat from that tree. And so Eve, Eve initially responds, like, no, God told us not to do, to do this because we'll die if we eat this tree. And this is, this is where we pick up in verse 4. Satan says, no, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So notice, notice what, what's in question here. You see, what, what Satan is ultimately challenging. Because remember, their justification come from, came from the word of God. And now Satan begins... Begin, or, because of Satan, Eve begins to question the very source of her justification. Well, how? She begins to question the, the words that God has spoken over her. And she ends up failing to believe the word of God, the source of her justification, the voice that declares her good, the voice that promises blessing in the midst of worshipful obedience. So what happens? She eats. She gives some to Adam, who was there during the whole event, and he eats. And then look what happens, beginning in verse 8. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord called out to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? A man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, now, as this account is written, so often we focus on this interaction that takes place between God, Adam, and Eve, and, and, and the serpent, and we focus on the fact that they're trying to blame one another, right? We've called it that they're playing the blame game, and I think that's happening, but I think something deeper is actually going on. 
See, more than playing the blame game, we see the damage done when we forsake the word of the God and the justification it provides. Now, they're trying to justify themselves to make themselves worthy. Now it's their word that they're relying on. Well, God, you gave me this woman. That's my justification. It's not my fault. I'm worthy. I'm still good to the woman. No, no, no. It's not my fault. It's the serpent's fault. If you wouldn't have put this pesky serpent here, if you wouldn't have allowed him into the garden, none of this would have happened. She's trying to justify her own worth. They have forsaken the justification of God for a justification found in themselves. Returning again to the author I mentioned a moment ago, he notes this. He says, Adam and Eve cast off God's rule. And in so doing, they also cast off his word of justification. They wanted to rule on their own terms, not his. And so they had to find a new argument. And for the first time, they needed to justify themselves. You see, what happens when we have to justify ourselves is this. When we have to justify our actions, we have to justify our value and dignity. It leaves us no room for freedom to worship because we become our own all-consuming God. I mean, let's call it the way we see it. If you doubt this is true, I don't even necessarily need to give you a theological, exegetical, whatever argument. Look at the world that we live in right now. People are trying to justify themselves at every turn. People are trying to justify themselves through their profession and their productivity. People are trying to justify themselves through their political parties. People are trying to justify themselves through their sexuality. People are trying to justify themselves through their degrees and their accomplishments. People are trying to justify themselves with social media. The list goes on and on of our attempts to show our worth and our value and our dignity. And we have become our all own consuming God. Because we threw off the justification that was sufficient. But in the end, what we have to come to reckon with is that our justification, our attempts at justification, will always fail to capture the majesty, the purpose, and the power of God's justification. When Adam and Eve made the decision to attempt to justify themselves, they initiated a pattern that would continue in every human being. And we see it, don't we? Let's be honest, it's not just out there. Some of us walked in here this morning feeling the need to justify ourselves. I'm going to put on a good show when the music plays so that people will think I'm good enough as a Christian. I'm going to smile when I feel like weeping because i got to justify myself. People are going to ask me how I'm doing and I'm a mess. But I'm going to tell them the Lord is good, I'm great. Because we're trying to justify ourselves rather than letting God's justification be enough. But here's the good news. God knew that our justification would never be sufficient. Our word wasn't strong enough. And even though humanity would throw aside the word of God in Genesis 1 that was sufficient justification to allow humanity to pursue its purpose perfectly, to worship our creator God as representatives of his kingdom and earth, even though we threw off the word of God, the word of God would again come to justify 
And this time it wouldn't just be spoken, the word of God would take on flesh. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And when Jesus came, he came as a living, breathing picture, the very word of God declaring that justification was available again. Because this Jesus would live the perfect life. He is the true image of God. He would perfectly worship, perfectly pursue his God-given purpose. He would fulfill the law in perfect righteousness, but still he would die a sinner's death. Not to pay the price for his sins, but to pay the price for ours. To pay the price for our feeble attempts at constantly trying to justify ourselves. And because of that, Romans 4.25 declares to us that he was delivered up for our trespasses. Here it is. And raised for our justification. And in Christ, we once again find our justification in the very word of God. And so what does this mean then for us as the church? Well, it means that we can reclaim our wonder. It means that we can reclaim our worship. Not worship to earn God's favor, not worshiping him because we, we have to, not, not worshiping because it makes us look good, but worshiping because his justification is sufficient. And I don't have to worship myself anymore because I can return to worship the God who justified me in the first place. And with, with this justification, not only do we reclaim our worship, but we can recapture our purpose. To live as God's representatives of another kingdom here in this world. Notice that when you are justified in Christ, God returns you back to how you were in Eden. And he says, once again, you are my representatives. That's 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So what does all this mean? Well, one thing it means is that we worship God and we think that he is so worthy that we want other people to see him as worthy. Because again, missions exist because worship doesn't. So what do we want to see happen? Worship, not just our worship, but the worship of everything that exists because in the beginning, God. And we enter into this world of self-justification and proclaim the most offensive message. That there is a God who is worthy of worship and it's not you. We live our lives in such a way that points to the truth that we don't have to justify ourselves. We worship a God whose word, the word made flesh, is a sufficient enough justification. We want others to see and hear and worship. And there's something profound in that truth when we think of it through the lens of worship. Here it is. It means the reason we pursue the world first and foremost is not because we don't want people to go to hell. Though we don't, that's not a sufficient enough motivation. The reason we pursue the world out there is not because they are worthy. Because they're not. Neither are we. It's not a sufficient enough motivation. The reason we pursue the world out there, the reason we engage in this mission and endure all the hardship and the pain and the struggle that comes with it, the reason we do all of it is because God is worthy of worship, not just mine, but the world that he created. And worship is the foundation of and motivation for the mission. 
I mean, consider the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, I'm going to bring it up now because it's not going to be one of the ones we looked at it. We looked at it every year past. We got we to get to something else. Just kidding. We don't have to. It's great. We think about the go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the very end. That doesn't make any sense if we don't say the line that comes before it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. See, Jesus uses his place in the Genesis 1-1 account. I have authority in heaven and earth. What he's declaring is, I am the God of creation. I am the God by whom all things exist and for whom all things exist. And I have authority. And if I have authority, you better go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, not so that we can fill our pews, not so that I can get a better salary as a pastor, not so we can hire more staff and more musicians and have a bigger building, because God is worthy of the worship of His creation. And until we believe that, we will never be properly motivated to do what God has called us to do. I'm not mad, I'm excited. So here's where I want to leave you. Got a flight to catch. I got to go. What all this means, if I could summarize everything that I just said, here it is. Our mission is an overflow of our worship. The reason we worship is because in the beginning, God created the heavens in the earth. And so here's the hard part. If we find ourselves, as we honestly examine our own lives, if we find that we're not valuing our mission, it forces us to consider the truth that maybe our worship isn't as deep as we think it is. And the entire purpose of this sermon is to lay the foundation for everything else that we will talk about. Yes, we're going to talk about gathering. We're going to talk about going. We're going to talk about making disciples. We're going to talk about doing it all where life exists. We're going to talk about all of this. And I believe in some pretty exciting and potentially new ways. But none of that will matter if we miss the fact that we exist, created by a God who is eternal and our existence demands that we worship him. And in so doing, find the joy of his justification. Worship fuels our mission. Watch this, which in turn fuels more worship. And so the fundamental question that we have to wrestle with, I want you to wrestle with it all week until we gather again next week. Here's the question. You can't just give me the Sunday school answer. you got to think about it, okay? I'm talking to our covenant members here. Guess y'all lucky. You don't have to think about the question. You should think about the question. But new breed, is God worthy of worship? And I offer up to you the mor- this morning the claim that Genesis 1 makes. Genesis 1-1 makes, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, makes a sufficient argument that God is worthy of worship. We exist 
to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel.